Welcome back to Bible Time in Valdosta, Georgia today and trying to get in another Bible Time while we're traveling here. So bear with us if it's a little um, a little less put together. Now we were studying Colossians 3, 5 last time. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now we looked at that there the first two, fornication and uncleanness, these were done without the body. Fornication, any act, any physical act that would be part of bringing children into the world outside of the confines of God-given marriage. And we studied that out in the Bible time um, entitled Mortify, Therefore Your Members. Now, um, those two, fornication and uncleanness, are done outside the body. The next three, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, these are done with the heart. Out of the heart proceeds adulteries, murders, drunkenness, all these things Jesus talked about and condemned in the word of God. They come out of the heart. He said, that which goeth into a man cannot defile him. That which goeth out of the man, that defileth the man. And um, these, this concept of mortify your members, we, we talked about the fact that mortifying your members means to bring them un- into death, to put your members to death. Now, how do you put your members to death? How do you put your flesh to death? By not sinning. Um, people say a lot about fasting. People talk about um, reading your Bible. People talk about praying. And Jesus talked a lot about obeying his commandments, and he did not talk about any of those other things very much. Jesus did speak about fasting some, but did you notice he never commanded the disciples to fast? Did you notice that? Have you ever noticed that before? Jesus never commanded the disciples to fast. Furthermore, Jesus never commanded, pay attention here. You guys knock it off, pay attention. Jesus never commanded the disciples to fast. He never commanded the disciples to read the Bible. The closest that he came to is whenever he told the unbelieving Jews, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So Jesus did not command them to read their Bible. All these things that we consider a mandatory part of the Christian walk. Now, these things are important. If you are a Christian, you will fast. Jesus said, then shall my servants fast. Then shall my servants fast. If you're a Christian, you will fast and seek the face of God. If you're a Christian, you will read your Bible. If you're a Christian, you will go to church. You say, well, I don't like that. I'm sorry. The Bible says in the Hebrews, not forsaking the assembling of themselves together as the manner of some is, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. And the Bible never commands you to go to church. It just clearly states that if you're saved, you will read the rest of that chapter in Hebrews. I believe it's Hebrews 10, but I wasn't intending to look into that today and didn't get the reference. So there it says that not forsaking the assembling together and look at the context, look at what happens. The ones that do forsake the assembling have nothing to look for, but a certain fiery indignation and wrath of Almighty God. Look it up. Look at the context. Real Christians fast. Real Christians pray. Real Christians read their Bibles. Real Christians go to church. It might not be the kind of go to church that you think I'm meaning by that. It might be an underground church. It might be a church where no one's allowed, no one can even speak above a whisper. I have the privilege most of the time in Bible time of being able to shout, being able to praise, being able to sing, being able to do whatever I want. Um, I have that privilege. Not every Christian has that privilege. Some Christians have to meet in secret, but that's still going to church, and they're going to church has to do with meeting under the authority and headship of Jesus Christ. We have studied 
studied that before. Now, these, this mortify, therefore, your members, the putting to death of your members is not going to church. Now, a lost man thinks that going to church is mortifying his members. He thinks that he's doing God a big favor going to church. He thinks he's bringing his flesh into subjection by forcing himself to go to church. A truly saved, born-again believer doesn't want to do anything else but go to church whenever there's an opportunity to go to church. And if he has to miss church, he regrets that he misses it. That's the case of a true born-again believer. Now, you might take issue with that, but that's Bible. And I gave you some scriptures you can look up there in Hebrews, I believe, chapter 10. Read the whole book if you have to to find it. But that's a real believer. A real believer desires the Word of God. A, a false Christian, a false convert will think that by by reading his Bible, he's going to mortify his flesh. He's going to do this great, this great act of self-denial and get out that great big dusty old book that's so hard to understand and open it up and sit there and force himself and discipline himself to read the Bible. And that man that's doing that is most likely a lost man, very likely a lost man or an extremely backslidden Christian. A real Christian loves God's word. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Hallelujah. I have esteemed the words of thy mouth more than my necessary food. I'd rather have your word, God, than my Bible. My heart panteth after thee. We're going to touch on that when we get to the end of our verse here today. Now, that desire after for God is part of the reaction of a born-again Christian. A love for God's word, as well as these other things that we're talking about. So mortifying your members. How does a Christian mortify his members? By not sinning. You want to put your members to death. The way you put your members to death is by not sinning. Your members want to sin. They desire sin. And the way that you put them to death, lay them in the grave with Jesus Christ, is activate the promises of God by faith. Lay hold on the power of the Holy Spirit by faith to give you the power to be a holy man or woman or child youth and trust God to give you the power and turn away and say no to sin. When you say no to sin, you're saying yes to God. When you say no to sin, you are mortifying your members. You are putting them down. You are bringing them low. Again, we talked about fasting. A real Christian will fast. Jesus said, then shall my servants fast. You can look it up. It's when they, the scribes and Pharisees came up. By the way, they were the fastingest bunch of people ever. And they would make long faces when they fast. And they would let everybody know that they were fasting. Jesus taught about it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then whenever the scribes and Pharisees came and said, Why do not thy disciples fast? He said, John's disciples fast. And the, the scribes and the Pharisees fast. Why don't yours fast? He said, that Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. Then shall they fast in those days. A true Christian, out of a deep desire to be near the bridegroom and a desperation to draw nigh unto God whom his soul loves, will fast, will push away the plate of food because of a deep yearning after God. And any other kind of fasting is a false pharisaical fasting. If you're fasting to mortify your members, you missed it. Mortifying your members is not sinning. God is the one that gives you the power to not sin. You go to God and say, okay, God, you said not to sin. You said all power is given me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and all nations. 
You said you had all power, Lord God. You said that the new man is created in true righteousness and true holiness. You said that if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father, which is in heaven, give the Holy Ghost to them that ask? And so you lay hold on the promises of God and say, God, in Jesus' name, please fill me with your spirit. Fit me for your service. Give me power over sin. Help me not to turn aside. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity and quicken thou me according to thy word. Hallelujah. The scriptures go on and on and on. Wish I had more of them written out here. And these ones, many of these should be committed to the heart. And again, a, a true Christian will memorize scripture just by the very nature of reading it, meditating on it, loving it, because it is his life. A false Christian will memorize scripture out of a sense of duty, and he'll have a great amount of scriptures memorized, possibly, and he'll be able to repeat them, but it's not out of out of personal love for God's word, and out of a heart that loves God. We're going to deal with the heart, Lord willing, a little bit here. We looked at fornication and uncleanness. These two things are sins that are committed in the flesh with the body. The next three that we're going to look at today, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These three sins are committed in the heart. Now, as we said last time we met together for Bible time, the uh, these five sins that God gives us here are a progression given in reverse. Fornication is the most outward manifestation of uncleanness, which uncleanness is the first outward manifestation of inordinate affection. And inordinate affection is an outward manifestation of evil concupiscence. And evil concupiscence is, as, I'm sorry, an internal uh, manifestation of evil concupiscence and evil concupiscence is an internal manifestation of covetousness which is idolatry so these things all work on each other we would usually start try and start at the root and work out but god here starts at the manifestation and works in why do you think that is i be- i believe that First of all, God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are higher than our ways. We don't think the way God thinks. My thoughts are not your thoughts, saith the Lord. But I believe that God does this because by starting with the outward manifestation, he gives you something that you can put a handle on. He gives you something you can relate to. What on earth is covetous? How do I understand what it means to be covetous in my heart? Well, he begins by the furthest the furthest expression of covetousness where it leads to, which is fornication and then he works back in from there now we want God to do a deep work in our hearts we want God to do a reviving work we want God to change us from the inside out so what God is doing is he's taking the outside sin and using it as a door by which he can get truth into our hearts and expose the inside sin what if I live my whole life and never commit fornication or a single act of uncleanness but inside my heart I'm full of inordinate affection what if inside of my heart I'm full of evil concupiscence and covetousness which is idolatry and I don't know that those things are there that will cripple me it will render me useless if I'm even saved if you can live in a constant state of sin inward or outward and not be utterly miserable in it then you're not saved because God chastens every son of his whom he loves God deals with us in our sins he doesn't leave us in our sins he loves us enough to deal with us in our sins now let's look at this here <clears throat> Excuse me. Inordinate affection. 
First um, Peter two eleven says, "Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul." Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So those fleshly lusts, fornication and uncleanness, war against the soul. They do a war in the mind, the will, and the emotions. Whenever you see somebody walking about naked or partially naked, it gives you a thought. It gives you thoughts in your mind that war against your soul. Their act of public uncleanness, of exposing their nakedness, which the Bible had the Levites and the priests wear linen britches under their garments that went down to the knee to cover the thighs, and God described that as nakedness. Showing off your thighs is nakedness according to God. Tight, form-fitting clothing that exposes your body, exposes your exposes your body parts, um, low-cut things that expose the breasts. The Bible says specifically that a man should um, be satisfied with his wife's breasts, not another woman's breasts. And if a woman's showing off her breasts, she's showing things she ought not show. But whenever you see that kind of thing, and that's Bible, again, I don't want to give you my opinion. I don't. My opinion's not worth a plug nickel. Your opinion's not worth a plug nickel either. God's opinion is not opinion. It's law. And God's word is law. It's truth. It's righteousness. It's holiness. And we need to just submit ourselves to God and let God define our term, God define the terms instead of letting our culture and our society define the terms. Just because you always grew up wearing something doesn't mean it's right to wear it, does it just because your mama does something a certain way doesn't mean you should does it god is the one who gets to define the rules and set the standards so when you see somebody walking around and you see that nakedness it has an effect on you and that begins a war in the soul if left unattended if that war continues to happen then what happens just like we see pictures of ukraine as they're getting um, attacked by russia right now and we see the buildings are smashed and the windows are broken and there's blackened debris and fire and people are living in storm shelters and bomb shelters and trying to hide from the bullets and there's fighting going on in Ukraine and it grieves our hearts to see that war happening as we see that as we see that violence and the bloodshed and we see the blackened buildings we see that Ukraine is ceasing to function as Ukraine once functioned and the people in Ukraine are getting hardened to some of their difficulties so as they continue to sit in the war and the buildings continue to be destroyed and the streets broken up they begin to get used to the sound of the bullets to a degree they don't jump as quick they don't start from their sleep as fast Are you following me? The buildings are blackened and it doesn't do to them what it did the first time they saw it. The first time they saw a shell hit an apartment building and destroy balconies and blast bricks and concrete in every direction, it shook them to the core. But now it doesn't affect them quite as much because they have been living in a state of war. Now, how does this apply to the battle in the soul? Whenever you see some nakedness the first time, it affects you strongly. And you feel it, and something goes off inside. The world makes jokes about it and mocks at the innocence of children, whereas God holds the innocence of children in high regard. But an innocent man who's not been exposed to nakedness will react much more violently internally to a little bit of flesh showing than a man that has been in the war and losing the war for a long time. 
the more you've been exposed to nakedness, the more you see nakedness, the more you hear about nakedness, the more it's around you, the more there's, the more sin, the more it's talked about, the more you see people shacking up, the more you see people living together that aren't married, the more you see these things, the more blackened debris builds up in your soul and the battle of the soul is being waged, but you have become hardened to the battle and you've become hardened to it. You no longer have the sensitivity that you once had. God wants to clean your heart up and restore your sensitivity. And by the way, with the power of his Holy Spirit, you can live in this wicked world and live around the wickedness and the immorality and the sin to a degree. You must be careful and flee immorality. I'm not condoning hanging out around it for fun or pleasure or enjoyment. But what I am saying is you can live in this world and not be of the world, but it takes the power of the Holy Spirit. It takes the blood of Jesus Christ washing you daily as you come to God. Oh, God Almighty. Have mercy on me. My flesh leaps at the sight of sin, and it will. By the way, the closer you get to God, the more of an effect sin will have on you. And let me tell you something. Sometimes the stronger the temptations will be because your purity, the more God purifies you and washes you in the blood of the Lamb and cleanses your conscience and purifies your conscience, the more God restores your innocence through the power of the Holy Spirit the more those things are going to affect you. And that is a very hard battle. Most people don't want to fight that battle. Most people would rather just give in and give it up and let the invading army take over. We need some people who are willing to stand and fight against the in the battle of the soul. The Bible says in Peter, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Get away from them. The Bible says flee immorality. Now these inordinate affections in Colossians 3, 5, these have moved from the body to the soul. And an inordinate affection is a strong immoral desire that is out of the bounds of scriptural morality. Not of Dr. Spock's morality, not of Kenneth Copeland's morality, or you name him, not of Pope John Paul, his morality. We're talking about God's morality, the Bible morality. So whenever we talk about inordinate affection, it's talking about a strong desire, the strong burning desire in your heart for something that is outside of the bounds of godliness. Now, we're going to look at a man today in the Old Testament to see how these this war of the soul was lost in his case, and it cost him his life by the end of his story. Go to 2 Samuel 13. 2 Samuel 13. And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. So here you have David's sister by a one of David's daughters by one of his wives, which polygamy is a wicked sin in the Bible, and look at what grief it causes. The Bible never justifies or condones polygamy. The, it always puts, shows it for what it is. It is not God's way. God said God made them male and female. He made one man and one woman, and he brought them together and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. That is God's plan. David had departed from God's plan. God had mercy on David because of his ignorance. Read Acts 17, where Paul says, The times of your ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So here David's sin, David's 
inordinate affections, David's wickedness, David's um, fornication had brought great sin into his family. David had repented of his sin, but now his son is following in his sin and not in his repentance. And oh, what a grief that is, and how often that is the case, that when we sin, people follow us into sin, but they almost never follow us out of sin in repentance. People are very quick to use you as an excuse to do more sin, but they're very slow to see when God changes you and actually desire to be changed themselves. Now, here Amnon had this sister. He was a she was a half sister, and Amnon had no business being with her. That was a breaking, a breach of God's law. And the Bible says in verse two, and Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. So here he was desiring to do something to her, and the fact that she was a virgin was keeping him from doing what he wanted to do. And she was not someone that he should even have. His desire was not a godly desire. It was not a, it was not a desire for marriage. It was a desire for fornication and uncleanness. And Amnon's desire drove him to sickness. This is an inordinate affection. He had lost the battle of the soul and he fell sick physically in his extreme desire to do an immoral act, to commit an immoral sin. Any kind of sexuality, sensuality, physical sensuality that is committed between people of any size, race, shape, or number that is outside the bounds of God-given marriage between one man and one woman begins with inordinate affection. The act doesn't happen until the burning happens on the inside. That inordinate affections. Ephesians 4, 21 says, and 22 says to put off the deceitful lusts. <coughs> Excuse me. Ephesians 4, 21. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, that's the former walk, put off the old, the, concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and that ye be renewed in and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. The new man, which is created in righteousness and true holiness, which I've been referencing that verse to Titus, and perhaps there's a verse like, there is a verse like that in Titus, but I've probably been giving you the wrong reference on it. But there it is in Ephesians 4, and he says here that the old man is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and he tells us to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. If you are living in inordinate affection, living with ungodly desires burning in your heart, and by the way, this is, the, this is far more common than the act of fornication. We were at a hotel um, in Alabama, I believe it was Alabama, where was it, Mississippi. We were in a hotel in Mississippi um, yesterday, and it, it was maybe it was just a coincidence, but all the men from the construction crew that were staying there, for some reason, in the 90-degree heat, would sit in the full sun at a picnic table right outside beside the swimming pool. And there in the swimming pool were a bunch of uncleanly dressed women who were... Um, behaving inappropriately they're running around half naked now is that a coincidence they, they just wanted to sit at that picnic table they just wanted to sit there because it was so nice and balmy outside no it was hot it was stinking hot and they were sitting out there sweating after a long day of hard work 
What on earth would possess them to sit out there? What was possessing them to sit out there was inordinate affection. It was driving them to nearly sick behavior to sit out in the heat by a swimming pool for the chance to get a glimpse at somebody else's lady in a condition she should not be looked at in. That's called inordinate affection. It's driving them to, an, to act in a way that is ungodly. That is far more common than the act of fornication. The act of fornication is wicked. The act of uncleanness is wicked. But, this for, but the inordinate affection burns in the hearts of men all over this nation even while they act clean. It burns in the hearts of women. Walk around burning with inordinate affections. By the way, every marital affair, every time a husband cheats on his wife, every time a wife cheats on her husband, it's because they have allowed inordinate affection to run loose in their hearts. There's a saying that goes around America that all sin is sin. Is sin. All sin is equal. Well, all sin is equally damning. All sin is equal in the fact that all sin damns to hell. It only takes one sin for a man to be damned to hell for eternity, but not all sin is equal. All sin is is not equal in either the final judgment of sin or in the consequences for sin in this life. Those things are not equal. A man can sit and have inordinate affection, but as long as he doesn't act on it, the degree of consequences that will come into his life are minimized. Now, if he continues to live with inordinate and affection, he will act on it. You cannot live with this and not get it under the blood and not repent of it without acting on it. I remember a young man who, when I was growing up, he became involved in some very serious immorality. And he, even though he went to church and did everything right, he was burning with inordinate affection. And he talked to one of the elders at the church, and the elder at the church told him, that's not really you thinking it. You need to reject that thought because it's not really you. Well, sometimes that's true, but sometimes it is true. Sometimes it's not true. Sometimes it really is you thinking it. And whenever you get to the point of inordinate affection, it really is you thinking it. When Satan brings a suggestion into your mind, that's a temptation. Jesus Christ was tempted. To be tempted is not to be to sin, but to act on that temptation is sin. And where the America tends to draw the line, most Christians that I've met will draw the line with a physical act. When I'm tempted, I can sit there and smolder and think about it all I want. But as long as I don't act on it, they say looking's free, but don't touch. It's free to look, but don't touch. Well, that's a lie. It's not free to look. When you keep looking, it burns in your heart. And we'll look at this more as we go on. Ephesians 4 says that speaks of putting off um, specifically the deceitful lust and being renewed in the mind. Loving anything more than God ultimately is the beginning of inordinate affection. And we will get to that in just a moment. Allowed to grow unchecked, inordinate affection will develop into uncleanness. People don't wake up. Listen to me. People don't wake up and say, oh, I want to be a rapist. I'm seven years old, and that's the greatest desire of my life. I want to, No, seven-year-old wants to be an astronaut, wants to be a doctor, wants to be a lawyer, wants to help heal people. Some seven-year-olds want to be preachers. Some seven-year-olds want to be nurses. Seven-year-olds generally want to do good things and want to help the world and, and be a better place. People don't just wake up and say, oh, I want to be a pervert. I want to be, a, I want to be an axe murderer. I want to be a... 
I want to be um, a sodomite. I want to do all this. That's not a natural affection. It's not normal. Children do not grow up that way. You're not born that way. That's an inordinate affection. And whenever that's allowed, whenever someone then is introduced to sin and they fester on it and it grows in their heart, it develops along the lines that we're studying today until it becomes uncleanness, an outward act of uncleanness. And from uncleanness, it builds into fornication, full-blown sexual immorality this is the progression that it takes hold your hands so here we have evil concupiscence mentioned next and to look at that we're going to look at Romans 7 and we will get back to Amnon here in just a little bit Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Here in Romans 7, Paul is dealing with the concept of sin. He's dealt with it. Romans 5, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And, he's t- and, we get, and we're taught here in the word of God that we're not under the law but under grace. But we get to Romans 7 and he says, um, says, what should we say then is the law sin? God forbid. What's the point of the law? The point of the law is to show you sin. I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Now this describes for us, this is, this, if you study out the word concupiscence and the word throughout the Bible, this is the one of the best verses that I've found to describe concupiscence. He uses the analogy here of lust here in verse 7 and he says thou shalt not covet isn't that interesting our final word that we study here in Colossians 3 5 is covetousness that's coming up next so lust and thou shalt not covet so here what happens is um, whenever a man sees a woman and she's a beautiful woman and he goes wow she's a beautiful woman and he begins to have desires towards that woman and he begins to think about that woman more and more And then, and let's just say that this man is a single man and that the woman appears to be a godly woman and he appears to be a godly man and he's thinking maybe this woman will be my wife. Maybe she could be my wife. And then as, as he continues to think about her, all of a sudden he's introduced to her as Mrs. So and so and she's a married woman. Now that man is confronted with the reality that she's married. Well, that man may be a new Christian, maybe he's ignorant, and maybe he still continues to ponder on her beauty and think about her beauty. That is covetousness. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Here he's coveting her. Well, then along comes the Holy Spirit, and he does that which the Holy Spirit does. He convinces men of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And through the law of God, he shows that man, thou shalt not covet. The man did not know lust before, but now his conscience pricks him. The Holy Spirit of God illuminates his conscience and shows him that he's in sin. And now that man is confronted with sin. He had not known sin, but that the law said, thou shalt not covet. Now, what is evil concupiscence? Evil concupiscence is continuing to meditate on that woman, to ponder about that woman, to think about having relations with that woman 
continuing to allow those thoughts or not even to think about the relations, but just to think about her beauty and meditate on Job said, I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Why then should I think upon a maid just to sit around and ponder her beauty? Oh, wow, she's awful pretty. And if that man continues to sit there and think about her beauty after the Holy Spirit of God has convicted that man of the sin and he's been exposed to the law of God, now that man is living in evil concupiscence. Evil concupiscence is desiring sin. Now, there's something very serious here. I, by the help of the Holy Ghost today, we will explain this. Lord, help us today. We don't always pray um, on the recording, but we do always pray before we do Bible time. And we didn't pray on the recording today, but God, we did pray before we started. We always pray that God will help us, that God will illuminate our eyes and open our understanding. And we do pray that again now. Do it, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. This is such a this is such an important topic. Evil concupiscence it kills people, it kills people dead, and it's, it goes unnoticed and undiscerned. Evil concupiscence happens when the desire shifts from the object that will become that object of inordinate affection, the object of covetousness, and the desire shifts to the a desire to act in rebellion to God's law. So the desire for the person was covetousness, but the desire for the person who I cannot have, who it would be sin to have, the continued building desire in the heart is a desire to act in rebellion to God. Do you understand that today? Look at me, pay attention. Evil concupiscence is whenever I have been exposed to the truth about sin, and yet I still desire sin. Let me make it even simpler. Once as a child, I desired a cookie that wasn't mine. I coveted after that cookie. I reached for the cookie, but as I approached the cookie, mother said, no, you may not have that cookie, and I went away disappointed. As I sat in my room thinking about that cookie, a desire formed in my heart to steal the cookie. Now that desire to steal the cookie is inordinate, is evil concupiscence. The desire for the cookie that wasn't mine was covetousness. Covetousness. The desire to steal the cookie. And furthermore, the desire for the cookie that I was forbidden to have was covetousness. But the desire to move forward anyway in the face of God's law in the face of sin is concupiscence it is rebellion of the heart concupiscence is heart rebellion against the commands of God when someone sits and meditates on committing sin they are living in evil concupiscence this is so important. Listen to me. Oh, listen to me. If you can get this and understand this, it will save you so much heartache when you can recognize in your heart this thought that I am entertaining right now is evil, concupiscence, and if left unchecked, it will turn into inordinate affection. And if that's left unchecked, it will become uncleanness. And if that's unchecked, it will become fornication. And it will destroy my life and the lives of others. Now, this took Amnon to great depths in 2 Samuel 13. We will look at that more uh, in just a moment.
Let's look at covetous, covetousness real quick, which the Bible says here in Colossians. Covetousness, which is idolatry. It says, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. To mortify your members. How You say, how practically do I do that? Uh, one of my, uh, a pastor that I sat under once is, would say this he'd say sometimes you just need to tell satan no sometimes you just need to have a sanctified no you just need to tell the devil no with the power of the holy spirit that is mortifying your members you say no to your heart tell yourself no you know people might think you're crazy if you talk to yourself but god won't tell yourself no just say no nike says just do it god says just don't how about them apples? You might not know that phrase. Oh, well, sorry. <clears throat> God says, just say no. Mortify. Put to death. Boy, we didn't even get into Romans 7 like I wanted to. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, any desire that transcends my desire for God is covetousness. Any desire for things that usurps my desire for God is covetousness because covetousness is idolatry, and idolatry is placing things in a position of greater adoration than God. Did you know that you can covet your own wife? You can covet your own children's affections. If you have a desire for your wife that is greater and more powerful than a, than your desire for fellowship with God, then you have a idolatry, you have a covetousness because you are desiring something that is forbidden. Covetousness, in short, is a desire for something which God has forbidden, something that not only God has not given me. Sometimes we have a desire for something God hasn't given me. Maybe I'm hungry and I need lunch and God hasn't given it to me, and I pray, God, please give me lunch. When God says, no, I want you to fast this afternoon and you say oh man I really want lunch now you are coveting now it might be your food it might be sitting in your fridge and you might have every right to eat that food but God has laid it on your heart to fast now you are coveting when you sit there and desire it you say I don't believe that I don't buy into it. that's because you don't believe the Bible and you don't buy into the Bible listen you're looking at things from man's perspective not God's perspective God is king and when you get saved by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit of God, you're born again by his power. God becomes king. He becomes sovereign of your heart. He already is king, whether you recognize him or not. But whenever you get saved, you are coming under direct allegiance to the almighty God, to Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And if he says jump, you ought to jump. And if he says sit, you ought to sit. And if he says stand, you ought to stand. What he says right is right. And what he says is wrong is wrong. Jesus is king. He gets to tell you what's right. He gets to tell you what's wrong, not this world. So when God tells you no about something, when God forbids something, even a good thing, and you sit there desiring it, in spite of the fact that God said no, you are now entered into covetousness. Now, there's some things God's already said about, no about. Pay attention. Look up here. There's some things God's already said no about. Can you go into the store and steal? Answer me. Why not? Why not? That's right. That's exactly right. A little one here said, no, I can't go into the store and steal. Why not? And she said, because the Bible says, God's word says, thou shalt not steal. That's exactly right. So whenever you look at something and 
you see it and you don't have the money to buy it, you don't have the means to buy it, you don't have any way to make it yours or any reason to make it yours and you're just sitting there desiring it, it's been forbidden you and you're coveting. Now, maybe you say, God, I need that thing. Can I have it? And you pray for it. That'd be a godly way to handle that. And when God says yes, then you say, hallelujah, and God will provide and take care of that. But what happens when God says no? What about when you say, God, I want to marry that girl. God, I want to marry that boy. And you pray about it and pray about it. And God says no. And you sit there and won't let it go. Now you're coveting. And that covetousness leads to the evil concupiscence because you can't sit and covet very long before your wicked flesh starts to figure out ways to get what you want. Let's go to um, the story of Ammon. So go back there to 2 Samuel. While you're going there, I want to read a couple verses from Romans 7 just in passing. We don't have time to get into it. Here he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Do you see that? Sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Why? He says, For with Without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. This is the Bible definition of concupiscence. Again, you don't have to have a dictionary even. It can be helpful. It can help, but the Bible defines its own terms. You don't need the Hebrew and the Greek. You don't need some Bible scholar. Just get yourselves a good old authorized version Bible that hasn't been tampered for a bunch of filthy lucre's sake and the love of money and get yourself an old authorized version Bible and read it and compare scripture to scripture and God will teach you. It says, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. What is he saying? Sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful so sin he says I was alive without the law once if I saw farmer John's apple hanging in the apple tree and I wanted it I just took it and ate it and I enjoyed every bite of it I was alive without the law once but when the commandment came sin revived and I died now there's a commandment posted private property stay out don't steal my apples or I'll prosecute you and now there's a commandment that says no apples for you Jack but now you walk by that apple tree you've been eating those apples your whole life you feel like you have a right to those apples you can taste those apples but with the entering of the commandment sin revives and I died he says so now you're standing there thinking I wonder if farmer John can see me I wonder if he would know if I climbed over his fence and took an apple really quick and got away and now you are contemplating sinning now your flesh is coming up with ways to get what you want and that desire to sin is evil concupiscence a desire for something that is forbidden is covetousness a desire to sin to take that which is forbidden is evil concupiscence and inordinate affection is an overwhelming burning desire in my body to do whatever it takes to satisfy and gratify those inordinate those the desires of covetousness and evil concupiscence 
So let's look at Ammon in 2 Samuel 13, and Lord willing, will be done. It says, And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. So here was a thought. He thought he loved her. Well, he knew he was, that she was his half-sister, and therefore forbidden by the Old Testament law and by all the laws of God's morality. Everybody knows that you shouldn't marry your sister. We got that down, right? You got that down? Now, in the original first, without getting, that's kind of a tangent. We won't even get into that. But the laws about marrying sisters didn't come in until much further down the, um, down the road from Adam. In the beginning, that is all there was, and that's what God allowed in the beginning. But God had put a wall there to shut that off and to protect the home because of the sin of men that was exceeding great, and he put a protection there, and we thank God for that protection. So Amnon knew better, and he had a love for her. So here was a forbidden woman. Tamar was forbidden to Amnon. He had no right to love Tamar. Now, people say, all's fair in love and war. What a lie that is. Well, it's all fair to you, but it's not fair to the other one. You say it's all fair in love and war if you're winning, but if you're the loser, you're sure squalling, crying like a baby. Now, the love here that he had for her was a forbidden love, and it says, and Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar. And why was he vexed? Look at it. You think that we jumped track with God's progression in Colossians 3, 5, but we didn't. I'll show it to you. For she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. So Amnon had been sitting around trying to think about how to get her. That's evil concupiscence. He loved her. He shouldn't have. She was forbidden. There's your covetousness. Then he sat around thinking about how to get her, and it was hard. Oh, it was hard. He wasn't even man enough to go for it. And I know that we shouldn't be and that we should restrain ourselves, but what a nasty wimp. What a nasty little pervert. And by the way, most perverts are nasty wimps. They're nasty, sick, disgusting wimps until they get a plan. And once they, turn, once they get a plan, they get an amazing, wicked boldness fueled by their inordinate affection. And then they do horrible things. Read Genesis 19. Read, I believe, Judges 19 about the Benjamin of Gibeah. Read about what people do and take warning. I, I encourage you, please read those passages and read and see the result of letting sin run unchecked in your heart. Now, Ammon was vexed for her and fell sick for her. That's that inordinate affection. And why did he have inordinate affection? It tells you right there, because he thought it hard to do anything to her. So his covetousness for a woman that was forbidden to him by God turned into evil concupiscence, a desire to act sinfully towards her. And when he could not justif justify his actions and he could not act on that sinful covetousness, it turned into an inordinate affection, an overwhelming driving desire that could not be satisfied. Now, with that inordinate affection, oh, Lord, help us today to bring this in for a landing. We've got to get this, people. I hope, you, I hope you'll listen. I hope especially those of you that are sitting in sin, listening to this right now, maybe sitting there with tears streaming down your face like I once sat when God would deal with me as I sat in this condition of inordinate affection, burning desires that I couldn't find a way to justify, that I couldn't find a way to do on the brink of total damnation of, of my body. 
on the drink of total destruction of my body, even though as a Christian my soul was saved, yet I had allowed the burning sins and the burning thoughts in my heart to grow to the point that I was on the edge of total destruction. On the already in the edge of uncleanness, already about to go off the deep end, and I would sit there and weep and seek seek help and seek seek some kind of freedom from it and not know it. Let me tell you what frees you from it: the power of the Holy Spirit and recognizing where you're at and what's going on and agreeing with God. Yeah, this is really me. This is where I'm at. God, you've got to rescue me or I'm shot. And I can tell you today, not once but twice in my life, above any other times twice in my life that I was at the point of total destruction and God showed me where I was at and he showed me that I was about to be destroyed and he pulled me back from the brink and he gave me power through his Holy Spirit over sin. Hallelujah to his name. I do not preach this as one who is guiltless. I preach this as one who has been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. I preach this as one who deserves the lake of fire for eternity, but has found peace and pardon through our Lord Jesus Christ. The blood that he shed on the cross at Calvary, the empty tomb that imparts power, not the tomb itself, but the resurrection of Christ that imparts power to Christians to live a holy life. Jesus died and he was buried and he arose. So here Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend. Larry Brown preaches a message, just preached it at camp meeting. Amnon had a friend. And here's Amnon's friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. He was sneaky. And he said unto him, Why art thou being the king's son? That's Amnon, the king's son. He's speaking to. Lean from day to day. Wilt thou not tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar. He expressed his covetousness. My brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed, and make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat, and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it, and eat it at her hand. Take warning. The devil walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Listen to me. You take warning. The greatest acts of atrocity and wickedness that have ever been committed in this world are acted upon after someone has been sitting, burning with inordinate affection for a long time, and they finally get an opportunity to let it loose. And the destruction and the evil and the filth that comes out of these acts is um, beyond any of our imagination. It's so tragic what happens. It says, so Amnon lay down and made himself sick. That was easy. He already was sick. And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said unto the king, I pray thee, let Tamar my sister come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat at her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to thy brother Amnon's house and dress him meat. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was laid down, and she took flour and kneaded it, and made cakes in his sight, and did bake the cakes. And she took a pan and poured them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have out all men from me. And they went out every man from him. By the way, girls... If you're ever in a room and a guy sends everybody else out, run. Don't let them go out without you. And it says here, And Amnon said unto Tamar, Bring the meat into the chamber, that I may eat of thy hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into chamber to Amnon, her brother. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her and said unto her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me. Now, why would he say my sister? If it was wicked to be with his sister, don't you think he would have covered it up? 
This gets us back to what we were talking about, about evil concupiscence. Amnon's desire had shifted from Tamar to the act of incest. Amnon's desire had shifted from the object of his covetousness to the act of sin. And this is absolutely deadly. This can happen in a marriage. You wonder why you... you Oh, God help us. You shack up and run around with men, girls, and boys. You run around in sin and live in wickedness and immorality. What is happening is you have become a slave to the sin. And then you're, you're shacking up with a boy and you decide, well, you know what? My parents are pressuring me and I need to get married. So now you go and get married. And the day after you get married, you lose all your desire for that boy. Young man, you lose all your desire for that girl. Look, that's what's going to happen right here. He says, come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done. To force is to rape. And he says, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly. And I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice. But being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Now here is the demonic power and strength of evil concupiscence and inordinate affection. All of that pent-up emotion, all of those pent-up drives had made him sick, had made him lean, had made him lean from day to day. And that sickness and that leanness made him appear weak. But when he had the opportunity to act on his inordinate affection, when he had the opportunity to act on on his evil concupiscence, the demons of hell infused him with power. All of his adrenal glands in his body went into overtime, and the man went into a frenzy of sin and of strength, of near superhuman strength, and he grabbed that young lady from his bed of sickness, and it wasn't fake sickness, by the way. He was vexed. with He had made himself sick. He wasn't completely faking but whenever he had the opportunity between the devil and his adrenaline and his fleshly drives, he had the strength to act on his sin. And he acted on it. This is the rush that the Sodomite movement is looking for. This is why they can never get enough. This is why they cheat on each other. This is why they kill each other. This is why people, marriages are broken up. Because you're looking for a rush. You're looking for the rush that only comes from sin, from rebellion against the Almighty God. You don't actually love those people. You love the sin. You don't actually have a any kind of true desire or love for them. You love the act of sin and the act of rebellion. That is why it's not good enough in this nation anymore just to be a sodomite. Now you have to do bestiality. You have to do child molestation and everything else. And they're constantly going deeper. This is why sin always takes you deeper and keeps you longer and makes you stay there longer than you ever thought and than you ever wanted to go. Because the desire for sin is separate from the object which you think you desire. This is the deception of sin. Satan will get you to look at that lady and think that you desire that lady. But he will, through evil concupiscence, Satan will work it so that you begin to desire the sin. And then it doesn't matter who you're looking at because you desire the sin. And you just want to fornicate. And the desire to fornicate transcends the desire of covetous towards that person. And now you're unfaithful to that person that you once thought was the chiefest end of all your desires. This is why... 
This is the reality of sin. This is what it does to you. So it's, look at this, verse 14, Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Verse 15, Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise and be gone. Now, did he ever love her? Yes, he did, but it was a forbidden love. It was a covetous love. And then his love for her had shifted into evil concupiscence, a desire to do something to her her that desire was not able to be acted on because he thought it hard to do something to her and because it was hard to do something to her he moved into inordinate affection and was burning with the desire to commit an act of sin and once he committed the act of sin listen to me pay attention right here once he committed the act of sin she could no longer fulfill that desire because he had already fulfilled it he wanted to destroy her virtue virginity he the bible says the adulteress will hunt for the precious life mr mr strong man with with your kids at home and your little wife trying to take care of your kids for god's sake listen to me today that woman doesn't want you she doesn't love you she wants to destroy your marriage she wants to to defile your purity listen to me it's not you she wants it's to sin that she wants and when she's done with you she'll hate you just like amnon hated tamar you listen to me today beware the devil is after you the devil wants to destroy he came to kill to seek to kill and steal and to destroy young lady you think that that man that bats his eyes at you and that makes faces at you and brings you flowers and stuff behind your husband's back you think he loves you more than your husband no he has a desire to defile and destroy your marriage and he's after something far greater than just a physical relation with you and it won't last when he's done with you you'll be thrown out like trash here Amnon throughout Tamar like she was trash Amnon said unto her arise be gone and she said unto him there is no cause this evil in sending me away is greater than the other evil that thou didst unto me but he would not hearken unto her then he called his servant that ministered unto him and said put now this woman out from me and bolt the door after her and she had a garment of diverse colors upon her for with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled then his servants brought her out and bolted the door after her and Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her and laid on her hand, laid her hand on her head and went on crying. I want you to imagine as we close little Tamar walking down the street with her garments torn and ashes on her head. A once beautiful virgin now defiled. Amnon thought he loved her but what his love turned into because it was a forbidden love because he would not submit himself to God and repent of his sin. His desires turned into more than a desire for Tamar. Turned into a desire to destroy her virginity and to commit incest with his sister and those desires that he had those wicked desires could only be fulfilled one time because once she was no longer a virgin and once he had done the deed it could never be done again do you understand do you see this is why marriages break up. This is why people get, are divorcing like crazy all across this country. Because you thought you loved that woman, but in reality, you loved the forbidden acts that you were doing with that woman. You thought you loved that man, but in reality, you loved the forbidden acts that you were doing with that man. And now you married him, and your love just has never been the same since you got married. This is the answer. This is why. It's because you were in evil concupiscence, and you loved the sin that you were committing more than you loved the person that you were committing the sin 
sin with. And that's the only way you'll ever sin with anybody, by the way. Because if you truly love people, the Bible says there's no occasion of stumbling in you. And you will not cause someone to sin if you truly love them. Girls, if a boy wants to commit sin with you, he is acting in evil concupiscence. He doesn't really love you. He loves the idea of sinning with you. Run away from him. It won't last. It won't work. Boys, if a girl wants to commit sin with you, wants to do wicked things with you, he's, that girl is acting in evil concupiscence. That's what she's trying to act on. And it won't last. She won't be satisfied and you won't either. Get away. Run away. The Bible says flee immorality. Flee immorality. Any desire that is allowed to transcend your desire for God is a covetous desire. It grows into, into evil concupiscence and then to inordinate affection and then to uncleanness and then to fornication. And what is the answer to that? To flee immorality, repent of your sins, turn away from your sins. God wants to deal with us in our hearts. God wants to deal with us before we destroy our lives and ruin our families. God wants to deal with us now. And I pray that you'll deal with the Lord now. If you look at the next verse there in Colossians, which we're not there yet, but it says, For which cause the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. This is Satan's game. He wants to bring you under the wrath of Almighty God. Repent of your sins. Turn away from your sins. Confess your sins to God. Turn to God in contrition and cry out to God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. If you're not saved, turn to God from all your sins. God, I am a sinner. Be merciful unto me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Turn in repentance and be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Read the context in Romans 10. Understand what that means. If you're saved and you're in sin, turn from your sin before Satan destroys your testimony, destroys your family, destroys your life, and leaves you a wreck. God will chasten you, and God will restore you, and God will take you to heaven, and but your work will be burned, and those that you love the most will be destroyed. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'd use this message to open our eyes, open people's eyes, Lord, loose them from their sins. You came to save us from our sins. Oh, work a true and deep repentance in the hearts of your people today. Oh, that we would turn to you in purity and righteousness and in true holiness. We love you today in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.